Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 6, verse 11 is where we left off last week. And we're going to read just four verses and stare at this truth and this imperative from this beautiful letter. As you're finding Romans 6, if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that's in front of you. I think it'd be so helpful for you today to stare at this passage And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that Bible. You can just keep it as our gift to you. I'm not a musician, but I've heard that the process of composing songs is often very laborious. And you, as you're writing a song or trying to come up with a a new tune, oftentimes you'll just play notes that just seems so mundane, either on a keyboard or strumming on a guitar, and, and it just seems like hour after hour, day after day, as you're in the studio, and it just seems dry, and nothing creative seems to be coming, and then it just seems like the dam breaks, and the flood comes in, and there's just a, a tune that just hits your heart, and there, there's the song. Or maybe you're an athlete, and you are familiar with just the mundane aspect of practice and football and you're just running fullback dives in the middle. It's just three yards and a cloud of dust and it just seems ordinary and mundane and laborious. And then all of a sudden, after just play after play after play of just a few yards, all of a sudden the line opens up and you just break through and there's just an 80-yard run for a touchdown. I'm getting excited. I want, to, I want to put the pads back on and be the athlete that I never actually was. <laughs> I think today that this text has the potential to, to be like that for us. Robert read out of Matthew chapter 8, and there was those three scenes where there's this leper and he's just wondering if Jesus can do something. And with just a word, Jesus says, I will be clean. And then there's this centurion who understands the authority of Jesus. And he says, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. Just with one word, you can say, go, and it'll happen. And then Jesus comes to this mother-in-law of his beloved disciple, Peter, and she's sick. And he just puts his hand on her, and she's healed. Today, I'm just praying for my sake, for your sake, that today would just be a day where the Lord just speaks a word, and we take great leaps in our sanctification. So let me pray and ask the Lord. Let me read the scripture and ask the Lord to help us. Romans 6, verse 11. If you're just joining us today for the first time, we're marching through this letter Just taking it verse after verse. We'll catch you up on the context as we work through. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Well, let's, let's pray. Father, we, we just sang it and now we pray it. Break up our cold hearts of stone and start a fire in our tired bones. Do what only you can do for the glory of your name, for the joy and satisfaction of your people, and for the salvation of all those that you've called to yourself that may be here this morning, and it is their appointed time to turn from death to life. Do these things, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's what I want us to see this morning. I, I want us to see this relationship between doctrine and duty. In this text, Paul has been building a case, the truth of our union with Christ, and we'll rehash that in a moment. And then from, from that foundation of the truth of what it means to be united to Christ in faith flows these imperatives, these commands, these delightful duties of the Christian life that actually lead us into true joy. So let's, let's just work our way through it. Nothing on the screen this morning except for just this passage that I want you to dwell on. Verse 11. So, let's stop there. I say it often, you know, the 1970s cartoons that just came on Saturday morning, Schoolhouse Rock. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Well, the word so is a conjunction. It's, it's bridging together what comes before with what comes after. And Paul is saying, so, or another way of saying, in light of everything that I have been talking about up to this point, in particular, from Romans 6, verse 1 through Romans 10, right before verse 11, in light of all that, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And what is this truth that he is wanting to cause us to see so that we might consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ? And I think it's the truth that we've been staring at for the past few weeks. And it's this truth of the fact that believers, if you're a Christian... God has given you faith, and that's the reason that you are a Christian, because of the faith, the gift that God has given you. Remember, as we've been working through Romans, he's very clear that all humanity, whether religious or non-religious, Jew or Gentile, church kid or somebody that's never darkened the doors of a church, all of us stand on equal footing, guilty before God by our nature and by our choices in this life. We are all 
We are all sinners, and we have all, Romans 3, fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the gospel is, is that we are not made right with God. We're not saved. We're not justified by our works, but by grace through faith in Christ alone. So that means that by grace that we have been given a gift from God. We were dead in our sins. And salvation means to be brought back to life. That's grace. And with that new life comes the gift of faith. Whereby we now are where we were previously unable and enslaved. We are now enabled and free to exercise the gift of saving faith that God gives. And put it, exercise it. On the object of Christ, who, like we have disobeyed, unlike that, Christ fully obeyed, God perfectly laid down his life on the cross, absorbed the wrath of God for all those that would trust in him, and then rose victoriously over the grave. And when we put our faith in Christ, friends, this is so simple and so incredibly beautiful, What Paul has been saying is that that faith, which by the way, again, is not a work of ours, but it's a gift that God gives us. We put our faith in Jesus, and now, Romans 6, 1 through 10, Paul's argument has been, is that the believer is now united, joined, grafted into Christ. Now, by faith, what's Christ's is now ours. And because he has died to sin, not because he sinned, but because he was a sacrifice to absorb the penalty of sin and has extinguished his penalty and has risen in victory over it. When Christ died on the cross, we were in him, united in him. So we're now dead with Christ. And when Christ raised again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, we were in him now. All the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection are ours. In fact, we're going to see this played out in the beautiful picture of baptism this morning when a sister is going to be baptized. And that's what baptism is for. It's not just a personal spiritual experience. It is meant to be a picture of that reality that when we go down into the waters, and why do we get, what's what's going on with the water? The water is a symbol of God's judgment and wrath. Just like the waters of the Red Sea poured over the Egyptian armies, God's wrath, just like the waters of the flood poured over a fallen world in Genesis 6 and Noah builds the ark, the flood waters of God's wrath poured over Jesus and he absorbed it and he extinguished it and he, he dried up the flood waters of God's wrath and he's the ark and when we're in the ark, the water, we are spared from it and we are safe and we rise again. And Paul is saying, in light of all of that, because of that, now you must consider. So here's this is really critical principle that you need to see. We've talked about it before, but I want you to see it again afresh in verse 11, is that the indicative of the good news of the gospel comes before the imperative of how we should live. So what do I mean by that? If you're confused by these terms, indicative or imperative. Indicative is just a figure of speech that is declaring a fact. It's saying this has been done. It's done. It's indicative. It's, it's happened. 
And so oftentimes in the scripture, Paul will just say, this is what has happened. Christ has reconciled you. He has done this. You are, if you're a Christian, united to Christ by faith in his death and his resurrection. And that's true. It's nothing that we do. It's a declaration. It's a proclamation. It's a fact. And from that, after the indicative, comes the imperatives or the commands. In light of this truth that has happened to you, you didn't make it happen, it happened to you. Now from that flows the imperatives. Because of this indicative, now you are enabled to do this imperative or command. And seeing the order of that is all important in the Christian life. The indicative or the proclamation, the announcement of what God has done always comes before the imperative or the command of what we must do. Mixing the order changes the gospel which brings life into religion which brings death. So do you see this? The gospel says, this has been done for you. You've been brought back to life. You were enslaved. You could not obey. But Christ freed you from it. And now because you've been freed, because it happened to you, now you are enabled to do this and live in this way in ever-increasing measure. Whereas religion says, you must do this, and if you do enough of it, if you do enough of it, maybe what Christ has done will eventually kind of, if you're good, apply to you. And do you see how, how different those messages are? One is the gospel that brings life, and the other is religion that brings death. And Paul is saying that so now you, because of, in light of the gospel, union with Christ, now consider yourselves dead to sin. And so he's going to give us three commands. The first one here is consider. Consider yourself dead to sin. I love the King James language here. It's this word reckon. Reckon, account. Put it in the register of your life. Reckon it. You are, what he's basically saying is that because of what Jesus has done, now we are free to say to sin, to consider it, to reckon it. You are dead to me. Now what are we saying? We know that phrase. Maybe, maybe you have said that to somebody before in your life or you've had that said to you. What are we saying when we say that you are dead to me? We all understand this language. We're not saying that the person that we're saying that to or the thing that we're saying that to doesn't exist anymore. Likewise, Paul is not saying that sin is not still something that Christians have to deal with. It's to say that you no longer have power over me. I'm done with you. Talk to the hand, right? <laughs> it just happened to be up and it just hit my mind. Practice, practically, what does this look like in our lives? If you've said you're dead to a person, it has continually caused you to walk away from God and they call you, what do you do? You don't answer. If you are dead to somebody and they knock on your door, what do you do? You don't let them in. Some of us are reading our Bible right now on a phone. I, I don't normally recommend this because I 
I think that part of the, the weakness of our age is we're so distracted by things, and that's why I think you should have a, a copy of God's Word in your lap that you're actually looking at so you're not tempted to check ESPN.com or Facebook while, while you're hearing the Word of God. But let me just offer one little dispensation of grace and say that right now might be a wonderful time for you to delete that app or to block that contact or delete it from your phone. And say, you're dead to me. Verse 12, he says, the second command that he gives us in light of the gospel, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The second command, let not sin, therefore, reign. So he's, he's painting this picture for us that, that we, and as Americans, most of us in this room are, are Americans, not all of us, and I think actually this is where people that have grown up in other parts of the world are actually at a kind of sociological advantage when they come to the Bible because they understand more than we do what it means to be ruled because maybe their government is less sort of autonomous and individualistic, and Americans are so caught up on, on this kind of autonomous individualism that we think that we are the captains of our own soul. But what Paul is saying here in verse 12 is he's saying, you have a king. And the point is here, the admonition, the freedom of the gospel, is it allows you to refuse the rulership of one king and submit yourself to another. That's what the rest of Romans 6 is going to be about is let the reign of Christ, the reign of the true king, actually reign in your body. But here the command is don't let sin reign, rule over you. Here's uh, something that I've been fascinated with for, for several years is um, a, a syndrome called the Stockholm Syndrome. Have you, have you heard of this? It was in 1973 uh, apparently there was this, there's this gentleman in, in Stockholm, Sweden that robbed a bank and he took four people prisoner. And I think it lasted for about a week. And he actually kind of psychologically tortured these people and, and even abused them to some degree, sort of mentally and emotionally. And then eventually the the prisoners were let go, and I think he might have got off, and he got a friend of his that the authorities released from prison to help him escape, and it was, it was a strange event. I mean, I was only two at the time. It's not like I was following it on the news, but I've read about it. And the, the, the really unique thing about this particular crime and bank robbery was that the psychological torture or damage that this bank robber put on these captors was to the degree that later on they, they actually somehow strangely bonded with this guy and they refused to testify against him in court. And I actually think some of them actually raised money for his legal defense. And it's come to be known as this syndrome whereby people that 
as really a means of survival in order to just get through this horrible event that they're in, they actually strangely emotionally bond with their abuser so that they can just survive. And then, strangely, they're kind of, even after they're free, kind of strangely psychologically codependent on this person that brought them such, such pain. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome. And in a way, that, that's what happens to Christians. It's like we've, we've been freed, but we don't quite realize it. And Paul is, and friends, come on, we can, we, can, we can talk about doctrine and we can come up with four or five steps and the things that we have to do and we can write our lists and we can go to Bible studies and we can be involved in the church and we can serve. But it just seems to me that there just are these times when the Holy Spirit of God must just open our eyes and reorder the broken pathways in our heart and say, no, you're free. I was a kid with a paper route. I've told this story before. And I, I, would, I would go by this house. I would fold the papers. It was the Imperial Valley Press. It's a terrible, but it's total fish wrap. And every day I got home from school, and before I'd go to practice, I had to fold up the papers, put them in these big bags that were kind of a canvas bag that would hold, drape over my bike handlebars. <laughs> And I'd drive to Lynn Ray Avenue and Sandalwood Avenue a few blocks away, and I'd throw the papers to their house. And a block away from my house, there was this house that had a fence around it, a short black fence about four feet high or so, like a, a, a gate that you could see through. And there was this huge dog. We'll call him Cujo. Huge German shepherd that would sit on the front porch. And whenever he would see me coming, he would jump off that porch. And he would, he would run after me and put his nose through the, 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 the gate and bark at me. And I was a little smart. I like 12-year-old with a paper out. And so I'd run the paper across the fence just to ignore, you know, just to agitate him. Ha ha, you can't get me. You're behind the fence, right? And then I'd go on my merry way. Well, one day... I was doing my thing, had my papers in my bag, riding down the street on my Schwinn bike. And right before I got to the house, I looked up, and the owners of the house were replacing the fence. And the fence was gone. But Cujo was still on the front porch. <laughs> and Cujo came up off of that, port, that porch and started coming after me. And I, anticipating him coming after me, got up on the seat of my Schwinn, and I'm ready. I mean, I'm riding the bike, trying to go as fast as I can, standing as high as I can, ready to just, just bat this crazy dog from biting me. And that dog came off that porch and started after me. Oh. <laughs> and right when he got to where the fence used to be, Praise be to God, that dumb dog stopped. <laughs> because he was so used to being fenced in, he didn't know that he was free. 
<laughs> Again, praise be to God. That's why I have two legs now. <laughs> and verse 12, I, I think inherent is this, is that Christians, we are no longer enslaved. There's no fence that's holding us in that says, you must obey this. Yes, there's an old man that needs to be put to death. Yes, there is still lingering sin. But the it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. You are free. You have a new king. And I pray that there would be people all across this sanctuary that the Holy Spirit would break through some old dam of disobedience and it would break through and let us look up and see that we have a new king. And an implication of this new king in our lives is that we are no longer bound to have to obey those old passions. Lord, do that. Do that. Do that right now, I pray. In verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, this, this third command here, do not present. So the first one, consider yourselves, reckon yourselves. The, the second one, let not sin. And this third command that flows from the indicative of the gospel, do not present. This, this word present is just the idea there is don't, don't put it close to something. Don't, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't get in that general vicinity. Don't put yourself in that situation anymore. And then what's interesting is this word that, that the particular version of the Bible that I'm reading from, the English Standard Version, interprets this word instruments. In other places in the New Testament, it's interpreted or it's written as weapons. And so what he's saying is, is that you, you, your, your, your limbs, your members, they're, they're like weapons for either unrighteousness or they're weapons for righteousness. It's not just a passive thing here. It has great ability to do evil or good, don't put the weapons of righteousness that God has redeemed, don't put it in the enemy's camp is what he's saying. Don't present yourself. Don't get close to it. Don't go to that place. Don't, don't go to that website. Don't, don't watch that show. And right, right now, like right now, don't hear legalism. Don't, don't hear some like grumpy guy yelling at you, although I guess I am kind of grumpy and I'm kind of yelling. I don't know, whatever. Don't hear that right now. Hear this pleading of the Holy Spirit to say, to just, I'm pleading with you that there's joy on the other side of obedience. 
And, and my heart is, is that yes, there's, there's things to be done. There's, there's, there's place to be run. There's, there's just three yards in a cloud of dust. Or there's hours to be spent in the studio, banging on the keyboard, coming up with a new melody. But I pray that as we stare at this verse, that as we would just look at verse 13 or verse 12 or verse 11, that by the power of the Holy Spirit who blows where he wills, that today would be the day that it would just break in somebody and they would see that they are free. You're free to obey God and pursue joy and say no and separate yourself and delete that contact and cancel that HBO prescription and, 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 and throw that computer out the window. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Was it profit a person if they know the storyline of Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, but their heart is a million miles away from God? What does it profit a person if they blow 13 hours of their life or week on Netflix and nibble on the word of God? Oh, dear friends, let us see that we are free to pursue joy. Because we've been united with Christ and, and all that's his is ours. And then verse 14, I, I just, I picture Paul, like he will, he will, he will utter some indicative truth and then he will, he will from that, he will, he will give us some imperatives and some commands and it's like, it seems like there's this pattern in Paul's letters where every time he does that, when he, when he says, this is the good news, and in light of the good news, this is what you must do. It's what he's been doing in verses 12 and 13. It's like, just in case you misunderstand, now let me come back around and give you another indicative truth so that you don't think, lest while you're doing the thing that, that the doctrine frees you to do, that in the middle of your doing, you sort of lose your bearings and think that it's actually you doing it. Do you see that? And so he starts in verse 11 with this truth of union with Christ. And in verse 14, he bookends it. He wraps these imperatives of verses 12 and 13 with another indicative. It's like a gospel sandwich. And here's what he says. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. It's a declaration. It's true. Whether you feel like it or not, it's true. It's true, young man struggling with lust. It's true, young mother who, who is struggling with your identity in Christ because your kids won't sleep through the night and your super friend's kids will. It's true. Sin will have no dominion over you. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until that day. Praise God, my, my little brother or sister agrees with me. Shout it, brother or sister. Let me read verses 11 through 14 again. And then we'll see this doctrine displayed in the baptism of our dear sister. So you also 
must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do. Break our hearts of stone and start a fire in our feeble bones. May September 24th be a day when people all across this sanctuary, may Romans 6, more important than a date, a passage, may, may Romans 6, 11 through 14 be a place where we put a check in our Bibles and say on that day the Lord blew his mighty rushing wind through my old dusty heart and brought life and power and freedom. And Lord, there's no formula, there's no mechanical list. There's just the beautiful, mysterious, wonderful, gracious work of your spirit that we need right now. Make the spiritual truth that we confess true in our lives for the glory of your name for the beautification of your bride and for the salvation of any in this room who don't know Jesus I pray it all in Christ's name Amen